0: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
1: This podcast contains occasional rude words and possibly some very wrong concepts, so you have to blame yourself for listening, and we hope you have a laugh. G'day, it's the Moon Man here, Lawrence Mooney. Did you ever have a childhood dream denied, but can live with yourself because at least you tried? Check out this podcast, Saturday Afternoon Fever, with Matthew Hardy and myself, where we remember what we were like as naughty kids, terrible teenagers, and young, drunk, idiot adults. Saturday Afternoon Fever.
2: Welcome to the first episode of Saturday Afternoon Fever which is a best-selling book by Matthew Hardy, Who Is Me? He Is Me, and I'm also sat here with the great Lawrence Mooney. Hello, Matthew. How are you, mate? Um, I'm good. This book's subtitle is
1: A Footy Fan's Memoirs of a Life on the Outer Looking In. I remember when that book was released, and uh, I am a massive AFL fan. Got choked up, because, uh, (laughs) and so the opportunity to speak about AFL is – I was very excited to be able to do this podcast with you – Let's not uh, digress. When that book came out, uh, I knew you as a stand-up comedian. I was able to surplant my professional jealousy, which is very rare for people in our industry. Very gracious of you. uh, Because I loved the book so much, and uh, it resonated with me. I knew so much about it because I lived in the eastern suburbs too, out in Bayswater. You're a Glenn Waverley boy. VFL Park, Marabin, the home ground of St Kilda, a lot of it resonated and so I'm excited to do Saturday Afternoon, the podcast. Thank you very much. Saturday Afternoon Fever. Either way, in which
2: I'm going to read the book aloud and we're going to interrupt whenever either of us wish Mm. to
1: elaborate and expand upon any of the topics I touch. And plus, it's also a sexual fetish of mine. To be read to by a man in a football jumper is the other reason that I've agreed to do this podcast. I'm a people pleaser. So I am wearing- So I'm just going to get myself ready and you read to me, you little- Bitch. Can
2: you at least take your pants entirely off rather than
1: just opening
2: the zipper? Make just the effort. around the knees. Yeah, I appreciate it. Oh. So, yes, the origin of the book is not dissimilar to your current status because I lived in London for a decade and uh, they haven't even heard of AFL, let alone live in another state like you in Sydney, and they miss AFL, didn't even know it existed, which is a shock to me because that it, it made up about
1: of my everyday conversation was footy talk. My childhood was entirely footy talk. Riding my bike to school was exciting, but then it was just the footy. Went to the footy every weekend. I've still got nearly every football record that I ever bought or was bought at the football. I lived and breathed it. I just know it so well. Those sets of um, Scanlan's footy cards. They're like artefacts of the highest value. In fact, you describe opening footy cards in this book so beautifully, as you rip open the paper and then you blow the dust of the chewing gum off the card, put that strip of pink gum in your mouth before you check what cards you've got. Now I've got my pants down. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, let's <laughs> just pleasure Forget- one another and look at footy cards. What podcast? <laughs> <laughs> what,
2: pod- <laughs> what podcast? It's not required. But I had a, I had an English girlfriend, her and my brother, this is back in the 90s, would send me VHS copies of Saints games and, and she'd like you know, tolerate me taking a two-hour – you know, time span to watch them in our lounge room it was a small London flat. So she'd have to, you know, struggle to avoid it unless she wanted to leave the house. But if it was winter, who's going to do that in London? And uh, so occasionally she'd like look at it for four or five seconds. And one time, remember what the umpires used to wear? The like white hat and the white long coat? Goal umpires. Yeah. yeah. And she goes, she watched the goal umpire signal, you know, six points at one point, didn't know anything else about the game. And she goes, what's that butcher doing beside the big sticks? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and butchers in England do dress up like that. Yeah, exactly. They the, what they call the trilby on. And, the trilby. Uh, and the big white coat. Big white coats. Why do they wear white coats when they're dealing with blood, the butchers? I don't know. Uh, actually, my dad used to have, my dad was from Liverpool, so was he was an Englishman and so did my mum. And uh, when uh, hit one of his put-downs was he goes, oh, look at those legs. When I was a boy, he goes, more meat on a butcher's apron. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's that other yeah. phrase about if, the if you're play, if you're playing
2: in the wet and the ball is greasier than a butcher's cock. Have you heard that one before?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard a comm- I mean a commentator say that. You're not a commentator, but you haven't And heard the, the ball's kicked deep into the back line, I tell you what, it is as greasy as a butcher's cock. <laughs> <laughs> that is gonna be hard to pick up today. <laughs> And of course, a butcher's cock would be crazy. <laughs> oh, <that's good. laughs> have, we,
2: have, we, have we finished this episode now or what? Well, it's good to be able to tease forward. So I would have a parade of mates doing the you know the Europe thing, you know mm-hmm. the backpacking thing, and they'd drop off. At my place where I was living at the time, and I'd put them up, and <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't realise it when we were going out on the on the source, you know, catching mm-hmm. up. I'd be talking about old times. I'd be talking about all the stuff that I couldn't or I hadn't been able to talk about from my background, from my youth, from my childhood. Uh, or just from any, any Australian sort of stuff that I couldn't discuss with, with English people, uh, and that would be the only sort of uh, framework of, of my side of the conversations we'd have whilst right. you know, doing pub crawls, and I'd be talking about you know Caramel Big M's and Egg Flip Big M's and Simon Townsend's Wonderworld and his, his mm-hmm. bloodhound Woodrow, and we'd be like laughing our asses off.
1: And going to the Glen Waverley Cinema exactly. to see uh, The Spy Who Loved Me. Roger Moore's. That's
2: right. How set? do you know that? Because I think we did do that. That was did the it era.
1: Stand up. Or is it in the book? Uh, I don't think it's in either, but wow. No, you, Can went you read with a, my mind. You went with a girlfriend. To, to The Spy Who Loved Me. Did
2: we? I can't remember my own my own life. Yeah. it's so
1: interesting. There's so many things to remember, Lawrence. It's interesting when you talk about being in England, because I don't know whether it gets mentioned in the book, but certainly you did a stage play, Saturday Afternoon Fever for the Melbourne International Comedy Festival some years ago. Three separate seasons over a 15-year period. Thanks, Larry. And three, three separate seasons over a 15-year period. Uh, yeah. period. I finally got it it's right. It's a beautiful uh, show about a young man's adoration of his football club. But uh, there's a denouement in that show which made me cry openly and that is the message your mother leaves you in that London flat on the answering machine. Oh, my I gosh. guess we're going to get to that. Is that in the book? That's in the book. Okay. Then that is a tease forward to a different time. There's an emotional moment in this journey, Saturday Afternoon Fever, that I urge you to hang around for. Wow. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, and so I, I would hang around with
2: these mates and uh, talk about all that sort of nostalgic stuff, and then the next morning they'd go, half of that was hilarious, not because of the way you told the various stories or you recounted the various memories, but it, it it spoke of stuff that I probably never would have thought about ever again in my life and probably haven't thought about for 15, 20 years since. And it was a relief and a wonderful, unexpected aspect of our evening out that you were taking me back in time. But then they would also say, uh, I think you're a bit mental and you probably need to clear a lot of the shelves in your mind to make space for new ideas. And new you know, experiences. New experiences. And so I sort of took that on board and then realised that uh, when you work, as I was a headline act at that point as a stand-up across the UK, Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, working most nights of the week, doing well, but then there's the problem that we all face is what do I do during the day? You know, and so um, how many joints can you smoke? How many beers can you drink? Heaps. How, yeah, how many women can you chase? Whatever, you know, how, how many heaps. lunches can you have with how many mates? You know, there's heaps. But then you think, oh, can I conserve my energy or can I use my creativity during the day to also propel myself in some other way? And so I thought, what if I start writing these stories down to clear that shelf space in my mind? Yeah. And maybe someone in my family down the track will care or want to read about, you know, this member of their family, i.e., me's life in some way or other. And I'd read a lot of those books that became a, uh, became a genre that was referred to as misery lit. So the first one I'm aware of was called Angela's Ashes. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. About that Irish bloke's—I can't remember his surname was McCourt—and he had this terrible, you know, the consumption and whatever
1: the 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 potato Living famine, on dirt floor.
2: Yeah, the potato famine. Uh, me Irish. Ma'am.
1: me mum was a smoker, <laughs> but she couldn't afford <laughs> cigarettes, so she used to get wood shavings from down at the carpenter's shop, where she used to tug off truck drivers to be able to buy us a potato.
2: That's that's the that's the genre, right? Mislit. Yeah, misery lit, and it became so successful that. Apparently, publishing houses were sending scouts to, like, the most remote parts of Ireland and knocking on doors, saying, have you got a more terrible background than this guy? Because it's the rage. And then his brother wrote a book, basically the same story, but from- the Frank McCall. Yeah, but from the bottom bunk. (laughs) It was the same book, essentially, but
1: his version. Right. That's good. (laughs) You know Frank's book, Angela's Ashes? Well, this is called Angela's Ashes, My Brother Used to Piss on Me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And he'd get belted for wasting the piss because we were thirsty. That's right. There was no running. Pissed
1: on the potatoes. (laughs) Got them a bit softer. Um, But there was also, uh, I don't know whether it came before or after this, Nick Hornsby's book which was a kind of like a, another fan's dedication. Well, so
2: Nick Hornby, uh, Hornby wrote – Hornby, rather. Yeah, it's all right. I'm not correcting you, but I'm just saying it cor- correctly myself. Yeah. Um, he uh, – I wrote a letter – remember remember letters? This is like, again, the 90s. I wrote him a handwritten letter and got one back saying, hey, do you mind if I steal the sort of structure that your book contains? Because his was about
1: being well, that's a-, a very nice thing to be able to do, to acknowledge the structure and then tell – because most writers, you know, I think it's Oscar Wilde said, good writers – borrow, great writer's steal. Right. Well, I'm not a great great writer. So, yeah, could I (laughs) borrow? I borrowed. Yeah. Yeah, But
2: I asked politely and he said, yes, sure, go for it. Because his was an account of following Arsenal. Yes. Uh, Obviously in England and I follow St. Kilda in Australia. But he said, hey, listen, I've got to make a confession. He read a a book about baseball by a fan and I think it's called – I can't remember what it's called now. Anyway. Yes. And so he asked that guy's permission and the guy said, yes, but if your book succeeds – will you write a forward for my book because I'm be trying to get a UK deal but baseball's not big in England and so that's what happened Hornby's book which appropriated uh, the baseball guys structure right regards how the story was told um, which was kind of just a rites of passage memoir it wasn't reinventing the wheel right but and that's what happened Hornby's book became so successful that the that the he then pushed hard for his publishers to publish the American guy's baseball book, and he did write a glowing forward. nice story. Yeah. I should have asked Hornby to write a forward for mine. Did you? No, you- you, I wasn't smart enough. You pay it back,
1: so you write a
2: forward for Hornby. Of course, but no one knows who I am. I do. Thanks. So- That's where that sort of came from. Uh, The combination of me thinking, you know, I should take my mate's advice and write this stuff down or clear it from my mind. You know, it's no use to anybody apart from a big drinking session when friends come from overseas. (laughs) And my girlfriend, you know, wasn't keen to try and learn so I could. Is that the supermodel girlfriend? uh, She actually was, and yes. Yeah. That's hard when your first ever girlfriend is a Jean Paul Gaultier, you know, Paris and Milan catwalk model. Like, it's hard. Okay, what's difficult about that? No, well, to maintain it throughout one's life if you don't stay with that woman for the rest of one's life. Oh, right. How do you, you know, stay on the top of that kind of mountain? Okay, there's. it's just not aesthetic beauty, though. That you. Of course. So I'm just interested in their heart and what's in their head, Lawrence. Nothing yeah, about their I know. physicality.
1: But um, if they I happen to be if a- you're going out with a catwalk model, it does, yeah, it's going to make a big impression on you. Oh well, yeah, but on she, your expectations. When I met her,
2: she was pulling beers in a bar because she would just completed—I don't know—Oxford Uni and had finished
1: in the top five percent of uh, you know of people getting marks that I'd month. Say now that that package is very difficult. She's top five percent at Oxford. She's a catwalk model. Well, she wasn't a catwalk she, model. And she's also prepared to work in a pub and go out with an Australian bloke. She's down to earth, incredibly intelligent, and beautiful. That is a package. Hard to beat. Hard to beat. Yeah, and uh, well,
2: I'm, you know, we stayed together for three years. It was my first ever girlfriend, though. So, as a starter pack, you know, as an introduction to relationships, she was she was a great person. Too. Did, she was a great did person. Did
1: it Break off before because you were coming back here, or
2: uh, no? It broke off. There was uh, a pregnancy that didn't occur that we wanted to occur, and then there was you know psychological hiccups that happened, and I got cast aside, which she'll admit. But anyway, but so you've you- taken this podcast in a
1: dark. No, but direction. it's all about this is where the book comes from. Yeah, so, well, it's not a dark direction. Well, I think what, what – tell there's you there's, what, a, there's a seminal moment to a writer's enough. journey.
2: In hindsight, what I think might have happened is I had and still have, lucky me, uh, a lot of mates from my childhood, from my youth, from primary school, from secondary school, from footy clubs and stuff. Uh, and then, of course, you make adult mates along the way through professional – associations like you and me for example, but uh and I've got two older brothers and I'm friends with mum and dad, you know, without sounding like a suck, uh it's difficult for one person that you're in a relationship with on the other side of the world to effectively play all those roles yeah. for you, to be what you get from your mum, to be what you get from your dad, to be what you get from your brothers and your mates from childhood and from youth. And so I think I was probably trying to get all of that off one person and and I mean, she would moving and she, and, away from expe- what you know. Yeah, and I was expecting her to give all of that to, to me. And so when she broke up with me, it was like I'd broken up with everybody I knew in my friends and family, if you know what I mean, because she was accidentally kind of playing the role of all those people that I'd left behind. Wow. Yeah. That is pretty intense. Should we take a moment? That's what I've, that's what I've conceded or concluded, you know, once you think it through any, any breakup. Or, what could but- I have done better? What did I do wrong? How did I annoy her? You know, how did she go off me? Whatever.
1: Um, we uh, we're similar because we're the youngest of three boys. Um, we're the babies. Yeah, we're the babies, and there's a lot of babies in comedy and showbiz. Uh, you, I, you're I, probably I, looking at one right now, Lawrence. I did no, I did a survey. Damien Callan and I used to be in a, a duo with um, Charlie Pickering, uh, Alan Bros, the baby. A lot of babies in comedy. And that's because we're born with an audience, and our mums go, "Look at him! Look what he's doing!" And the other two are like, "Oh, do we have to?" We're doing our little, <laughs> da, 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 da. hey, look at me pretending to drive a bus. Yeah. Everyone get on the bus. <laughs> and our mums love us, empower us, and we've got an audience. Everyone and, get on the bus. Yeah, I used to have to drive my brothers to school, and the bus would break down in the hallway, and they'd be like, "Mom, it's like you stay on that bus, boom, 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 to the front door every day." Wow. And then uh, they couldn't get off till I went. Kitsch. Do you need a hug? No. <laughs> I, I needed to be protected from them because when I was old enough, they beat me savagely. Well, and why not? You know? Well, I deserved it. That's their job as well. And, you know, it's. it's Done me the world of good. <laughs> no, but don't
2: you, your older siblings, especially the firstborn, their job is to break your parents morally, spiritually, ethically. So by the time you come along, yeah. all yeah. the things they had to do, like my oldest brother had to do dance, like ballroom dancing, because mum and dad used to go to dinner dances, and that's how you met people. So they wanted my brother to have dance skills so that he could go to dinner dances and meet people, not realising or or foreseeing the future where there w- was no dinner dances anymore. There was no ballroom in which you would meet people as the only option, you know,
1: for mating purposes. Progressive dinners too.
2: Exactly. Then he had to go to Sunday school. Uh, yes, you know, my it, eldest brother had all to that to catechism. Stuff. Yeah, and by the time I came along, it's like they were over no, that's it. It's gone. Nothing. Yeah. They couldn't be bothered taking you to Sunday school, making you do dance lessons. And then your older brother would go, how come I had to do all that? And it's like, well, you broke them, you know. You got locked up overnight. You tried to take Dad on in a fist fight when you oh, came home yeah. drunk. Oh.
1: Right? I saw my father give my eldest brother an absolute pizzling. <laughs> and uh, like I said, he was from Liverpool. He served in the RAF during World War Two. He was a proper imperialist Brit. My brother comes home. He was going to uni. He's 18. And so he's now allowed to smoke inside. He bought himself a pipe, like a corncob pipe. He packs the pipe. He smokes it. I could see my old man just looking at him like, like just waiting for an excuse. Long <laughs> hair, smoking the pipe in the chair. Anyway, the news comes on, and the Queen comes on the news. And my brother goes, "Look at that stupid cow." Well, he is just getting combos from the old man. And me and my brother Steve are just laughing our heads off. He punches the pipe out of his mouth. He's just going, you don't speak about Her Majesty the Queen like oh. that. You don't speak about, you know. Wow. And like, wow. A and, royalist. And Christopher stands up and he's like thinking, should I start – exchanging yeah. blows here yeah. and he puts his hands up. He goes, don't you raise a fist to me. And, oh, that beating, it seemed like it went on for half an hour. It was only a matter of 30 seconds. But yeah, but if you do throw one back and you defeat
2: your father, that's all Star Wars Greek mythology stuff <laughs> that opens up and will never close down. Oh, yeah. Where does the father stand in the in the hierarchy, in the status? In, the, in Yeah.
1: You know. The father needs to be the top dog. Yeah. Yeah, if you – Knock your father out. Then your father has to pack his bag and leave.
2: Of course, because otherwise, next time your father annoys you, you're going to go, don't make me oh, – you know what I mean? That's the reversal oh. of roles that no one can handle. Yeah, and, and so – Don't make me f- give you a hiding like last time. Dad. <laughs> Pipe down. Mum. Dad. I'm, I'm not telling to him. Drive me-,
1: me to the pub. <laughs> yes, son. <laughs>
2: oh. My big brother, right – he was allowed out when he was 16 or something to a party, and he was supposed to come home at midnight. My dad was a copper, and he had a uh, 6 a.m. starting shift the next morning. And so uh, about 3 a.m., we hear a car come screeching around the corner and uh, screeches to a halt, and a door opens, and empty cans come scattering and clattering out onto the side of the road. And my brother, dad said he was stinking of uh, weed and women. It was Loud off. music, yahooing, what have yeah. you. Then he opens the flywire door, right? mm carefully quietly uh, holds that with his foot from clattering back onto him opens the with the key like so, you know, there's a lot of uh, scratching and attempts at finding the keyhole yeah yeah right no no phone torches in those days troubled process finally gets it in the slot turns the key, you know, almost like, remember you do that, like a millimetre at a time, and it will take you about an hour to turn the key, <laughs> yes. trying to keep it quiet so the clacking of the mechanisms and the cogs doesn't wake up the folks, and then uh, pushes the front door open, then releases the flywire door back into its position and then quietly shuts the main wooden front door mm. and his bedroom was immediately to the right of the front door so he opens up his bedroom turning that handle, you know, a millimeter at a time. Right. It's and like then, going through a minefield. Right, and then shuts the door behind him. And on the back of the door was a Debbie Harry poster. And he turns his bedroom light on and he's facing the back of his of the back of the bedroom door and throws his fists up triumphantly, turns around and there is our uniformed a police uniform father sitting on the bed or waiting. So dad's obviously seen this out the window. This got up, he's already in his uniform because I don't know, I'm not gonna get any sleep now. Um I'm gonna to have to deal with this situation. Well, that is
1: that is chilling.
2: And he's walked in the so darkness no, of the house to my brother's room and shut the door behind him, left the light off just and just waited. Laid in wait like a proper copper. Yeah. So he stands up and says, Where have you been? And my brother puts up his dukes oh, no! and says, come on, you old <laughs> Oh <laughs> He reckons he then saw a flesh-coloured saucepan heading toward him <laughs> and reports, have it, that there was one of those cartoon Bugs Bunny type, but my brother shaped holes in the door. The door. And
1: Debbie the, Harry.
2: Yeah, Debbie Harry sort of plastered, wrapped around <laughs> his yeah. face on the other side. Wow. Yeah, but, I mean, look, when, when it comes to making decisions, my brother
1: committed, didn't he? Well, that's it. I actually have run into your brother on in a professional capacity. Oh God! I was we were as, recording this, please. I was working as a spray boy. Pardon? And, <laughs> no, I, I was working as a spray boy. Come again? At um, David Jones. Do tell. What is a spray boy? Okay, so. I, I had a modelling career yeah. in the early 90s. I was with a modelling agency. Oh, you're modelling. Clay. No. <laughs> oh, he got me. Yep. Sweet burn. Das. Go on. So I remember Das, <laughs> yeah. Das, actually, because uh, I was from Germany. Das, das Horsch, Uh So, Das, which is this. Is it? Yes. So what, that, there was
2: modelling clay called, called this. this.
1: Yeah, because you can make this. Or this, thus, thus is good. Um, so, I would be assigned to a new fragrance, like you know, uh, Jazz by Yves Saint Laurent, and stand in the Eve Saint Laurent um, shirt at the front door and spray cards and give them to people. Where was this? At Meyer Fountain Gate or something? No, in in Burke Street in the city, on the Melbourne. street. No, in the store. So right. David Jones or Meyer. Yep. So you know how they have spray. They, they'd have a I thought they were spray girls. I've never known of a spray boy. So they'd, it'd be men and women. Were you a handsome young blade? Yes, I was. Right. Well, well, was you it? still are, of course. of course, Thank you very much, uh, you know, many years ago. Anyway, your brother approached me. <laughs> no that, that was much later Because I didn't even know you then no, f- Forget the spray boy story How was- can I? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry I've mixed up I've mixed some media here in my head I wish I could No it was many years later I was in David Jones And I was uh, wandering around Having a look at something on no clothes And this guy comes up to me And he goes You're not thinking about pinching anything Are hey, you mate? <laughs> this is my brother Who at that point Had been a 20 year cop himself Following yes. in dad's footsteps And I said no And he goes Yeah just as well uh, And I was like I was like Thinking Fuck off yep. But he didn't say that Because he's This big bloke You're not thinking about Pinching anything are you I said no And he goes just kidding, mate. I'm Matt Hardy's brother. And I, oh! I see. Good. And Love he it. was the store detective.
2: I'm surprised he didn't then hand you some stuff for nothing oh, no, and say, quick, yeah, go. Absolutely. They're said, not watching. Is, that's the door to go out. Yeah. yeah.
1: And as you go past the uh, alarms, throw it in the air and catch it on the other side. I've never even thought of that as
2: a possibility. You have, of course.
1: Obviously. You've done it. Have you done it? No. But I just wonder if it works like that. Hey, what about, I've just, do you know why I've wedged in the modelling Thing there because your girlfriend was a model, and I tried to fuck one-upmanship. Up <laughs> yeah,
2: well, we can go. We can go out
1: to.
2: We can go out together for three years if you want.
1: I can't be all those things to you, though. I can't be your mother, your father, your brothers, and all your mates. It can't work, and that's where the problem lies. Yeah, and so. That's why I wrote this book. That's why you wrote this book. Okay, that'll do us, Lawrence Mooney, for today. I am having a ball, so uh, please join us on the next episode and tell your friends. Bring some friends along. Thanks for joining us.